Last week, we looked at verse 3 of chapter 1, and the question that we were trying to answer is, how do I bless God? How do I bless God? The reason why that was perhaps the most important question to ask of that text is because Paul opens with a simple statement and yet incredibly profound, blessed is God. Blessed is God. And as I argued, if you ponder that reality for any length of time, there is a subtle command that issues forth to us that we are to bless him. So how do I bless God? And the answer, if you remember back to last week, was that you need to know how God has blessed you. The way in which you bless God is to know how he has blessed you. As we train our hearts in the way of gospel truths, we respond with praise. And it cannot be the other way around. It has to begin with an acknowledgement of how it is that God has blessed us. And the more accurately we know God's blessing in our lives, the more biblical our praise will be of him. God commends us to study his word in part so that we understand the manner in which he's blessed us. And as our fickle hearts come to terms with how he has blessed us, so our praise, our lives align more and more and more with what he would have us look like as Christians. We carry on in that same vein this evening because what Paul begins to do now in verses 4 and following is to explain more fully the blessing we have received. If you remember back, I said verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians is his message of the first three chapters of the book in miniature. He gives us in miniature format what he will go on to explain for several chapters. And we begin tonight by looking at the unrolling of God's blessing in our lives. We're into the longest sentence in the book. Though it is not represented as such in the English text, this is one long sentence in the original. Paul cannot contain himself as he strives to explain to us how God has blessed us with the purpose that we would praise God in response. That remains Paul's purpose, to bring about praise in the Ephesians toward God. And as this text comes to us this evening, as God's inspired and inerrant word, it is the same for us. You can see that that's Paul's aim just by looking in a very cursory manner at this paragraph. Notice the common refrain three times over, to the praise of his glory. One of them is found this evening in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Again in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then a third time in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Paul is not hiding his motive here. He is unpacking God's manifold blessing in our lives in order to elicit Praise from us. Our desire must be, as we come to this text, to praise God and to do so in a manner that honors him. 
I truly believe it is the most important thing that you will do this week. Praising God is the most important thing you will do this week. More important than anything that might present itself as urgent and demanding your attention. More important than any fires that you need to put out in the near vicinity of your world is the, what can seem, all too distant priority of praising God. Because it is when you praise God that your worldview starts to align with a biblical worldview. It is when you praise God in accordance with the way in which Scripture commends us to praise Him that your response to your circumstances around you starts to fit with the biblical blueprint that God gives us in the Bible. It is when you praise God in the way that Ephesians 1 commends us to praise him, that your feet start to walk a God-honoring path. Your hands give themselves to God-honoring tasks, and your lips speak God-honoring words. To put it in the negative, if you fail to give yourself to praise of God this week, things will start to unravel in your life very quickly. If praise is not of the utmost importance in your life, things will come off the rails very quickly. I guarantee you, you cannot live a life that honors God until your praise of Him is where it ought to be, which is of the utmost priority. So we are desperate to know this evening, how is it my heart will pulsate with praise towards God? How might I find that kind of response in my heart as a norm As a standard, day by day, how can I ensure the orientation of my heart is towards God in biblical praise? I want to say right up front, if you are not reconciled to God, you cannot praise Him. If you're not reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ... You cannot praise God in the way that Paul pictures the Ephesian Christians praising God. He has no space for your praise. God won't receive your praise. He won't listen. I got in some trouble not that long ago for preaching this very truth. I was preaching in a context that was somewhat different from the circles in which I tend to find myself, a very different flavor of Christianity. And in passing, not even planned, in passing in a sermon, I said, if you are not reconciled to God, he does not hear your prayers. At the end of the sermon, I sat down next to my darling wife, who always reads the situation better than I do, And she leant over to me and she said, I hope you're ready. (laughs) And I said, for what? She said, here they come. And sure enough, there was a long line of people. 
He wanted me to explain myself as it relates to the comment I made, if you are not reconciled to God, he does not hear your prayers. But I stand by it. It's biblical. It is the gospel. It is the the negative side of the gospel. We're ostracized from God by virtue of our sin. And our sin puts such a chasm between us and God that we are foolish to think that he has time for us, benevolence for us, favor for us, if that sin has not in some way been accounted for. And so in the same vein this evening, understand right from the very beginning, we cannot praise God unless you have first and foremost been reconciled to him through the death of his son. If you are here this evening and you know that you have not been reconciled to God, we are so happy that you're with us. We welcome you. Please be reconciled to God. Trust that Jesus has made a payment for sin and that he can make you right before a holy God. Now to everyone else, and I assume that most here this evening are saved by the gospel of grace, my encouragement to you would be to bring people to this church who you know have not been reconciled to God God has put them in your life. And I know that the notion of evangelizing, of sharing the gospel can be very, very daunting. I know that that cripples us at times with fear. And in the weeks and months ahead, we'll talk about how we share the gospel and why it need not be a fearful thing but a wonderful thing. But for now, let me just encourage you as a member of this church to be bringing people, inviting friends who you know are not reconciled to God. There will be an explanation of the gospel from this pulpit. Whoever stands behind it will speak the truth concerning Jesus Christ. There will be an articulation of the gospel in our prayers and in our singing. And in our fellowship, transformed lives will be self-evident to anyone that cares to look. So bring people and pray with me that God would be pleased to save many through the ministry of this church. All of that is precursory to the text. How do we praise God? Where do those impulses come from? Paul lays out three truths that bring about praise in our heart toward God the Father. And they are truths that are causal in their relationship, like a a domino effect. Paul is charting a course of theological truth. And these truths are not disconnected nor isolated, but one flows on from the other. The first truth that Paul gives us is that God chose us. He speaks of God's election. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God chose you to be a Christian. You did not choose him. 
but he chose you. And you read about this doctrine in all manner of books and commentaries, commonly referred to as the doctrine of election. And many would add the word unconditional. We speak about this doctrine as unconditional election. The reason being so as to emphasize the point that you contributed nothing to God's choosing of you. He was not bound by anything. He wasn't bound by you, your behavior, your inclinations. He was not bound by time or circumstances. No one and nothing put any contingencies on God when he chose you. Unconditional election. That's why Paul, I believe, puts the time stamp here in verse 4. He could easily have said, even as he chose us in him, that we should be holy and blameless before him. But Paul adds a, a time stamp, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. Why? So as to impress upon us, this happened before you were. Before you were, God chose you and ordained that you would be saved. In that sense, we can say that God's choosing of you was an entirely free act. We talk about our freedoms. If you think about it, we're not as free as you might like to believe. We are constrained by many things. We are constrained by our circumstances. We're constrained by our relationships. We're constrained by our responsibilities. In a very real sense, I don't have much choice as to what I do tomorrow. And that's a good thing. But God, contrary to us, is the most free being in the entire universe. He is not constrained by anything. So then, why did he choose us? He was not constrained by anything, so why did he choose us? And the only thing left to appeal to once you recognize that nothing factored into his decision outside of himself, the only thing left is an appeal to his grace. Election is one of the doctrines, perhaps the doctrine, that most evidently manifests God's grace. Of all the doctrines we might speak about, election is foremost among them that puts on display his unmerited kindness towards sinners. I think Paul is even hinting at that with the refrain that we've looked at already this evening. I wonder if you notice how it changes subtly throughout the passage. Look again, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Now, I do think Paul is communicating, in essence, the same truth every time he writes those words, but the inflection is important. In verse 6, and in verse 6 alone, we find to the praise of his glorious grace. Why? Because that is where, in his sentence, grace, or I should say election, is most clearly in view. 
It's at the point that he brings election most clearly into view that he finds cause to praise God's glorious grace because election is foremost amongst the doctrines of the Christian faith that displays God's unmerited kindness. Not everyone believes what I've just said to you. There are many who would preach conditional election. They wouldn't call it that, but they would not call it unconditional election. There are many who would reason that God's choosing, God's predestining of us was predicated upon him seeing something in us that made us worthy of that choice. So you'll sometimes hear people say what God did as he foreknew us is to look down the corridors of time to see your disposition towards God, to see how you would be inclined to him, and upon that basis, he chose you. Many would ascribe to that understanding of election, and it robs God of his glory. It doesn't honor the death of Christ. It doesn't ascribe to God the glory that he deserves. And it doesn't correspond theologically with what we understand in the rest of the scriptures. If God were to look down the corridors of time, the only thing he would see is what a wretched sinner you would become. Apart from the fact that the text tells us he chose us before we were, apart from that, if he were to look down to see what you would be, he would find zero inclination in your heart toward him. Theologically, it does not correspond to say that his grace is conditioned upon you because it's not. But it's a wonderful thing to affirm God's unconditional election, his choosing of you before the foundation of the world because of its implications. Consider that if it is true God chose you before you were as a free act, if your salvation has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with God, there is zero chance that you are going to lose it. Amen. Now, that could not be true if you had contributed to it. If it was somehow a mix of God's choosing and you're leaning towards him, I would be terrified of losing my salvation. Because there are days when I am not leaning towards God. All of these doctrines of grace come together. If one falls, they all fall. As one stands, they all stand. As God chose you before the foundation of the world, you having contributed nothing to your salvation, you can be greatly comforted your salvation is not going anywhere. It rests with God and God alone, and he will see you through to glory. And so as you meditate upon the doctrine of election, your heart can't but respond in praise to God. 
The doctrine of election is actually all the way through this text. It's most clear here as Paul uses languages, language of choosing and predestination. But as we walk through over the next few weeks, we'll see time and time again references to God's will and his plan. It's all the way through this text. Paul makes mention of it often. Our hearts must find a resting point on it often. Pursue the discipline of thinking upon God's unconditional election as a means of bringing about praise in your heart toward the Father. Well, Paul goes on from there, that being the first truth. He then explains the result of such choosing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is the result of his choosing. It was not arbitrary and it wasn't without purpose, but God chose us in order that we should be holy and blameless. Now those two words are two sides of the same gospel coin. Holy means pure. We've been set aside and cleansed, made righteous is the inference. Blameless means without blame, without spot or wrinkle, without defect before a holy God. We are holy and blameless. They complement one another. They're two sides of the same coin. And you can see, as we consider these truths, our right standing before God because he declares us in Christ to be holy and blameless. The gospel is being brought into view. This is why Paul can't help himself saying over and over again in this passage, in him, in the beloved, through Jesus Christ. We mentioned last week Paul's favorite doctrine in Christ. How overarching and wide-sweeping it is in Paul's theology. And sure enough, in the three verses that are before us this evening, he keeps going back to Christ. Our relationship in him because our holy and blameless status is founded upon Christ's perfect life and his death on the cross and resurrection. If it were not for that, there would have been no payment for sin. If it were not for that, God could not credit us with righteousness. But because of the gospel, because of Christ, God's electing choice has the result of us standing before him this evening with the joyful proclamation from a holy God that these people are holy and blameless. That is how God sees us this evening. Now let's tie that to the doctrine of election. This phrase, before the foundation of the world, is one that many of us are familiar with. We probably use it with reference to other truths in our lives. I do. I'll often say, before the foundation of the world, God ordained that you would be married. Before the foundation of the world, God ordained that you would be sat here this evening. Before the foundation of the world, God ordained that you would be doing life with one another. We would be doing life together as a local church body. 
all of these things are true and we're simply upholding the sovereignty of God. But Paul gives us that truth not in relation to our everyday existence as Christians, but in relation to our holy and blameless standing before God. Which means, before the foundation of the world, before you were, before earth was, God made a decree. He made a decree to send his son to die for sinners. And as he made that decree, your name was not far away. God said, my decree in eternity past is that Christ should be crushed. It was the will of the Father to crush him. And as he made that decree, your name was in that conversation. You see how much the doctrine of election demonstrates God's treasuring of you. Some years ago, my brother was wrestling with this doctrine. I have two brothers, one older, and he's a pastor now. He was saved a few years after I was. I was saved at 21, and Ben came to saving faith a few years later, and now in the Lord's kindness, we're both serving as pastors, and prior to his salvation, he wrestled most with the doctrine of predestination. It was a hindrance to him. And Laura did many, many, many hours of good work with him. I was in the Navy at the time and going to sea. I wasn't able to be contacted, and so Laura would speak to Ben and share the gospel, and he would call her and and he would get annoyed and frustrated over the phone at this, this strange doctrine that to him was what was stopping him coming to faith. That's what he would say. One Sunday, he stopped by Laura's house just to check in on her and make sure she was okay. She said, I'm going to church this morning. Do you want to come? So he went with Laura. And in the Lord's providence, that morning... The preacher got up and said, this morning we're going to think about predestination. And Ben will tell you to this day, he remembers very, very clearly the preacher that day saying, you can think of predestination like a pineapple. On the outside, it's very prickly. And it is. To someone who hasn't been saved, they approach this truth that we delight in and get annoyed and frustrated. How, what do you mean I don't get to choose? What do you mean it's not up to me? God has already decided if I'll become a Christian. It's prickly when you're on the outside. But the preacher said it's like a pineapple on the inside. It is so sweet. It is intended to be for us a comfort Something that displays God's manifold grace towards us. And something that shows his love in so much as he was willing to send his son to die from before the foundations of the earth in order that you would be declared holy and blameless. It is sweet to think upon the reality that God decreed one day you would walk into court. 
a theological court with a holy judge who is just, a judge of integrity and will not bend. But God decreed you would walk into such a court with a great crime hanging over your head. And God decreed that on that day, the verdict would be not guilty. God decreed that on that day, no punishment would be given to you. Because it's already been given to the Son. And more than that, God said, and on that day, I will give to you a spiritual lottery ticket. The winning ticket that credits you with infinite righteousness. Think upon God's electing choice of you to make you holy and blameless in order that your heart would respond in praise. And understand, very practically, very practically, one way you would praise God in response to this truth is to strive towards holiness. I am here expanding your understanding of praise. Praising God is not limited to our singing songs to Him. It is not limited to our praying to God. Certainly those things come under the umbrella of what it means to praise. But Paul would agree, praising God is to envelop our whole lives. What it is we do with our hands and our feet 24-7. That's why he gives three chapters of explanation of how we're to respond to these glorious truths. How might you respond to God's grace in his choice of you so as to render you holy and blameless? It is certainly to strive all the more for holiness. You understand that none of us are there. God declares us to be there in Christ. And our responsibility is to strive to be like Christ. Just ask yourself this evening, wherein there are avenues in your life that you have yet to start pursuing holiness. Avenues in your life that still don't look all that different from the world. Areas where you are not living altogether a distinct Christian life. Strive towards holiness as a means of praising God for his choice of you to make you holy and blameless. Third truth that God gives to us, the causal connection. Paul is charting a course and one truth leads to another The third truth is God's election of us unto sonship. In verse 5, Paul says, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, I want you to notice the parallelism between verses 4 and 5. There is a level of parallel thought between the two verses. 
in verse 4, he chose us with the stated purpose of being holy and blameless. In verse 5, he predestined us with the stated purpose of adoption. Now, to choose and to predestine are not pure synonyms, but there certainly is a large measure of theological overlap. To predestine puts a slight accent on the ordained path that God chose for us. To choose puts a slight accent on the act of choosing. They're not exactly the same, but there's a large degree of overlap. Both have God's free choice of us in view. Most likely, the specific relationship between those two notions is that God predestined, and as a result, he chose. It's probably how those two work together. He predestined, and therefore, having predestined, he chose. Nevertheless, between 4 and 5, there is a parallel line of thought, except, he says in verse 4, to be holy and blameless, and in verse 5, to be sons. And the way that we account for the discrepancy, the difference, the divergence, is to see that God's rendering of us to be holy and blameless was not the end in and of itself. That was not the end in and of itself. He had a relational goal in mind. There is a judicial aspect to the gospel, but it gives way to the relational. There is a judicial reality to our salvation in Christ, but it feeds and it serves the relational reality of us being called sons and daughters of God. One leads to the other. That court hearing that you were summoned to, didn't even end when God said no punishment and infinite righteousness. That's the best day in court ever, and yet it didn't end there. As you walked out of the courtroom, the judge beckoned you back and said, no, 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 you're coming home with me. You get to call me father now. You see, as you really start to probe God's election, you get an insight into what is his heart. And perhaps our praise towards him is yet further helped when we consider the cultural background into which Paul is writing as it relates to the doctrine of adoption. Paul is writing this letter in a Greco-Roman context. The doctrine of adoption would have been well known to the recipients of this letter. If not the doctrine, then the practice of adoption. It was very, very common in the ancient world. But here's what it looked like. Adoption in the ancient world was very, very rarely of an infant, of a child. Why? Because there was no knowing whether this infant, this child, would survive to become an adult. Infant mortality rates are high. So we're not adopting children in Paul's day. 
That then suggests to us what the purpose of adoption was. Adopting in Paul's day was for the purpose of bringing about a firstborn son. Those that adopted were those that didn't have a son. They had the means financially to adopt. But after they went, their life was over, their heritage, their lineage, their name would be no more. And so, in Paul's day, adoption occurred so as to bring into the family an adult male who would be the son of the one adopting, the one to carry on the name. That is what the Ephesians would understand by the context, by the reference to adoption. And so you see as you consider that, the unfathomable grace that God has given to us. Number one, he had a son. He didn't need us. He's not like some guy in Ephesus that is without a son who has nobody to carry on his name. He has a son. He has a perfect son. He has no need to adopt. Number two, he didn't acquire us by giving some money. God's adoption of us was purchased through the death of his one son. The one son that he had. He sacrificed so that you and I would be brought into the family. To consider God's grace as we see that the judicial aspect of the gospel in turn serves the relational aspect. And this evening, we boldly come to this holy God as a father in heaven. I didn't grow up with anything of a father figure in my life. When I held my first child, I was terrified. I didn't know what it was to be a dad. I had never seen that modeled. I remember when I came to the Christian faith, I did so without any knowledge of the doctrine of adoption. It's funny how God brings people to salvation in Christ, not with a complete theology in place, but enough theology so as to be saved. And that's what I had. I had an understanding that my sins had been paid and I'd been made right with God. On the night of my baptism, that same preacher who had preached the pineapple sermon, a very good friend of mine gave me a book. I still have it with his note inside. And it was a book by a man called J.I. Packer called Knowing God. If you haven't read that book, please do so. Around about chapter 3 or 4, Packer writes about adoption. And I remember sitting in my room at college reading and coming to know for the very first time that now in Christ, I have a father. Packer says in that chapter... He believes it is the most 
precious doctrine in the Christian faith. And I would be prone to agree. Consider God's choice of you, not simply to justify you, but to adopt you. And if there is a a practical outworking of praise to our Father in response, a practical manifestation of praise in our lives in response, it is surely to love one another as brothers and sisters. As we come to terms with how richly blessed we are so as to be called sons and daughters, we then look at one another and say, you are my brother and sister. And as we come to terms with God's immeasurable love towards us through Christ, the way in which we praise him is to show that love amongst one another. It is a sin to be part of a local congregation and to show partiality. To embrace some on a Sunday morning as a brother in the faith and to avoid somebody else because you bear a grudge. It's a sin to be part of a church and to embrace some amongst us as siblings in the gospel. And yet because of some kind of preference issue, there are others that don't feel that same level of love. Now, As we close, I want to remind you that these impulses of praise must be fought for. You leave church on a Sunday, Monday is coming and the week begins again. And we all have a hundred things that overtake us. These impulses of praise to which God's word is driving us must be fought for. So let me encourage you this week to be much in the scriptures, meditating upon these truths, praying that God will orientate your heart towards him in praise. And may we be found faithful, praising him day after day as those who have been chosen by God. Pray with me. Father, we love you because you have loved us. We love you, Father, because before the foundation of the world you chose us. You elected us unto salvation in Christ. We are holy and blameless this evening because you chose us. Father, you chose us to be adopted. We are sons and daughters of the living God this evening because you chose us. And we see that your choosing of us is a display of your grace. We praise you for your grace in the gospel and ask that we would be steadfast in considering the manifold riches of the blessings we have received so that our hearts would respond in praise. Father, please work this out in us to the praise of your glory. Amen.